Welcome to Webcology. Webcology is the show that takes you into the deepest and darkest ends of the ecosystem on the internet. Our guides will take you on a journey into web marketing and bring you the experts and the information so that you can further explore the web marketing world. Now, here are the hosts of Webcology, Jim Hedger and Dave Davies. Welcome to Webcology on webmasterradio.fm. This is Jim Hedger from metamen.com, Dave Davies from beanstalk-inc.com. There's been some neat stuff in the, in the news this week, um, most notably for all you uh, artistic designers out there. Um, Google apparently can now parse content. I've heard that somewhere before, and I think it was uh, a, a couple years ago that I first heard, <laughs> oh, God, heard yeah. that. Well, but it, apparently they've done it this time. That's what I hear. Yeah, well, traditionally, traditionally SEOs have um, had big problems with Flash because the search engine spiders have, have always seen Flash text or Flash as an image or a series of images, like a little movie file, and they haven't been able to grab information out of those. Now, a couple of years ago, um, Adobe, realizing that it, it had a problem, um, if, if, if web designers couldn't get their content into search engines, obviously the... Adobe's got a problem. They came out with something called the Search Development Kit that was supposed to be this panacea um, solution. Uh, but it wasn't. Unfortunately, it wasn't. And so... Oh, I'm being messaged here. Oh, it was, thanks, Dave. It was Macromedia at the time. Anyway, so uh, they came up with this with the Search Development Kit that was supposed to allow uh, Yahoo and Google and uh, Ask.com and Microsoft to go through their, go through Flash files, and it didn't work. And I remember writing about this a couple years ago, and just it was like I insulted Apple. The, uh, the Adobe and Macromedia fans just freaked out. Um, but now, according to Google, they can, they can do Flash content. Now, so what do you think this is going to do for, for, for us? Um, like, is this really accurate? Are they are they following all the links? Are they? I mean, I guess we're going to have to wait and see, at least in part of it. But what are they claiming at this stage that they can do? Well, as I understand it, they can read all the text that's in that that's in a flash file. So if you got like scrolling text or flashing text or even text that just sort of sits there statically inside your SWF file, Google will be able to read that. They'll be able to read all the alt text. They'll be able to read all of your links and all of the user interaction uh, items like buttons or uh, submit forms or what have you. Google should be able to see that. Anything a user can see or interact with, Google can, but they will not be able to take images out. And if your Flash file is triggered by a JavaScript file, well, Google still doesn't do JavaScript very well, so it probably won't read a Flash file that's, again, triggered by Java. So would you say switching to a Flash-based site, I already know the answer to this question, by the way, switching to a Flash-based site is now within grasp, maybe not something you can do today, but within grasp? Christ, no. God, no. Dude, don't do it. Like, um, from an SEO perspective, unless you have your search engine optimization team with you at the very beginning, when you're, when you're just thinking about developing your site, when you're getting your content together and figuring out where it's all going to be, if you're going to be using Flash and you want good search results, involve your search engine optimization specialist like, really early in the design phase. Or you're likely going to get this really expensive, beautiful Flash file that has to be redone. And no SEO likes going and telling their client, hey, great website, but you need to start from the ground up again and spend another $10,000. No one likes doing that. So um, either follow the, the normal advice, which is to you know, use Flash for sure, but embed it in the standard HTML document so the, so the spiders actually have something to grasp onto. Um, or... If, if, if you've got to use Flash, and I realize there's some condominium developers, uh, some art, art, art websites, um, art television sites, what have you, I realize that, that they need to use, uh, uh, they, they feel they need to have a more artistic homepage. No, I, I can relate to that, but like, seriously, if you're going to go that route, have SEOs involved from the get-go or be prepared to, to spend money to make the file twice. Yep. Good uh, Lisa Barone, and good Lisa Barone, actually, over at the Bruce Clay blog, um, wrote a wrote a long a long piece on how she's glad that you know Adobe finally got it together. But really, folks, use some common sense. Yeah. 
true. What else? What else? What else? Speaking of comments, I think, what the hell is the matter with the people writing ask.com? <laughs> I knew where you were going with that. <laughs> oh, man. Like, if, 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 if anyone's still paying attention, ask.com just killed their greatest feature. Like, the, when people would point to Ask.com being a, a technology leader in the search space, often they'd think about Ask City, the mapping feature that Ask had. Mm-hmm. It was phenomenal. Well, they just killed it. They just killed it. It's dead. Now that they're outsourcing everything to uh, Microsoft Virtual Earth, which, you know, no knock on Microsoft. Virtual Earth is actually pretty cool. But Ask City was the leader. It was better, I, I think it was better than Google Maps, far better than Yahoo Maps, much better than Microsoft Virtual Earth. Um, Ask City would, would allow you to plot courses walking and biking and driving. Um, it would allow you to plot multiple courses. It was just a, a really phenomenal little mapping system, and the idiots in New Jersey, like maybe the algorithm can find, Je- can find Jesus, but it can't find common sense. Well, they killed it. They killed it. Those, these people, what is the matter with them? You know, I remember you have been talking about this one for, I can't even remember your last uh, sort of writings on, uh, on this service. What would inspire uh, any thoughts? I mean, I have, I have none on this one. I just think it's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I have no idea why they would why they'd drop it like this. Do you have any, any thoughts on why they might have done that? I don't know. I was thinking really, really heavily on this for a while, and, and um, I was you know, going through some emotional difficulties. And um, I was trying to poke my my eyes out with my cigarette, but then my cat told me that would be a bad idea. Um, and so, like as you can tell, I was trying to get into the heads of people at Ask.com. They're obviously crazy. Um, dude, I don't know. I have no idea. They're trying to cut costs. Um, maybe maybe nobody was using this feature, like like the core demographic that Ask is going after. Uh, what about real searchers, like people who obsess on search engines? And again, you know. I've got I've got a point to Lisa Barone who wrote a piece uh, in today's I'm pretty sure it's in today's Bruce Clay blog um, on the death of Ask City. It's uh, it's senseless. I, I I don't know. It's just um, stupid, penny wise, pound foolish. That's what I figure. Penny wise, pound foolish. Gotcha. Is this the uh, beginning of the end? Well, no, the beginning of the end was a while ago. Uh, yeah, the beginning of the end happened in February. They just don't know it yet, and maybe they do. Maybe 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 they do. Maybe they're just like letting everybody out slowly because like they don't want an exit at the front door because that would look embarrassing or something. Right. <laughs> Jesus Christ, give me strength back. Um, what are your feelings on just to, to quickly switch because we got an awesome interview coming, so I want to make sure we get in uh, a couple other news items here. What are your feelings on uh, the lack of privacy you now have on YouTube? <laughs> well, um. If uh, anyone has, hasn't seen it yet, there's a good article over at Search Engine Land. Danny, Danny Sullivan penned a good article on uh, how the U.S. courts are forcing Google to give Viacom all search data relating to YouTube. It seems that Viacom wants to uh, seems that Viacom wants to prove that its content is going up on YouTube, and to do that, they their lawyers feel they need all the search data through. Uh, through YouTube. Now, admittedly, I haven't. I only skimmed the article at Search Engine Land. I uh, just read it about ten minutes ago before going to air, and um, I think it's a reasonable assumption that Google is not only going to appeal, but going to try to come up with a better way to get the information that that Viacom actually needs to them without sacrificing user privacy. But as it stands today, a U.S. court has ordered Google to hand over these these search results to YouTube. Um, whether that means they will or won't, I don't know. Because again, if I, I, I'd be almost certain Google's going to appeal it. Um, but there, there was a little piece, and I, I admit I haven't read the full article, where, where Danny mentions that the judge protected Google's algorithms, but still hasn't protected the, the user data. So um, I'm disappointed by that. I think there's probably a dozen different ways Viacom could have could have got the information it was seeking. Um, you know, maybe hiring some some uh, high school or college students to do searches for them. Um, you know, that's a low tech solution. Maybe getting their own spider is a bit more of a high tech solution. But um, I don't think that it's necessary to hand over private user data. 
No, I tend to agree, and I think this is really, it, it really reflects um, one of the fundamental problems with the, uh, a lot of the traditional media sources in that they are trying to address a problem rather than trying to find a solution. Uh, to that problem, and, and you know, I mean, you you note some some low tech. I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with a low tech solution if it works, right? I mean, heck, I I still use Google. I'm sure if I invested enough thought and, and and money into it, I could come up with a way to to just you know voice everything and never use a never use a typewriter and have it read my thoughts. But um, you know, sometimes a more low tech solution um, is is suitable. Um, but I think this also reflects a problem with you know Viacom and and Similar, uh, similar companies, in not in not trying to actually go. Okay, you know this is what's going on. If it's not through YouTube, it's through somewhere else. Um, what can we do? Like, can we either use product placement a little more rather than traditional advertising, so that you know this is actually a bonus for our advertisers? Can we work out a deal with YouTube where you know we'll actually feed our video clips up there and, and put a 15 second commercial at the beginning? You know, come up with some new solutions rather than than just dragging this out like this and and challenging it because if it's not YouTube, it's somebody else. Um, and you know they're going after YouTube because you know if they win that one, that's kind of a win across the board. You know, if, if Google can't beat you, then you know you win pretty much no matter who you're facing. Um, you know, you know but, how they they always say that a general always fights the last war. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel the same way about the the older media companies like Viacom or the uh, Recording Industry Association of America. They're using old tactics. Um, you know, using the courts to to talk about uh, individual licenses when you're dealing with a problem uh, from their point of view, a problem that's on a, a global scale. Yeah, they're using yesterday's solutions to try to come up with the problem they have today. Well, I mean, and you you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, I think that's exactly right. Um, and eventually, they've got to adapt. Um, you know, hopefully one of them is listening in and maybe just triggering that, hey, maybe there are some different solutions. I mean, heck, I, I think for, for companies like Viacom, I think there's enormous opportunity here to, to generate additional revenue streams. To, to Yes, somebody somewhere is going to have some copies of your stuff. Um, you know, and they're, they're, they're going to, you know, I've recorded, uh, you know, video things and, and shown it to a friend, right, <laughs> and lent my videotape to a friend. You know, these, these are just the things that happen. Um, but I think they, on a mass scale, they, they could actually start treating this as an opportunity and, and creating additional revenue streams for themselves, uh, and, and certainly some additional, you know, if nothing else, a bit of goodwill. Um, you know, I don't think they're hurting by any stretch of the imagination. I understand that you have to protect your intellectual property on, on that front. I do get where they're coming from, um, but they could do both. They could basically say, we are going to be giving this away. Um, we are going to be putting this ad here. We are going to have some product placement in the versions that we're putting to, to online for you, and, and and off you go rather than, than trying to challenge this every single time. Well, and that brings up a, a great problem that the traditional media faces in, in the digital world. Um, you can put advertising around your video or your audio or your, in the case of newspaper, print content, but those ads on online cost a hell of a lot less than they do on television, on radio, or in a print newspaper. Mm-hmm. And so to create this content, you know, for, for the companies Viacom hires to create their TV content, the smaller production companies, there's no way they can meet their nut based on the, on the amount of money Viacom gets per file online compared to the amount that Viacom would have gotten or the smaller production companies would have gotten putting their stuff on CNN, putting their stuff on HBO, you know, putting their stuff on traditional TV. That's a huge problem for them. I don't know how they're going to solve that. Well, I think a lot of that's going to be in part um, the sort of evolution of our approach um, and how we're viewing this. Um, You know, a lot of people view online advertising as a cheap advertising, right? We're, We're still thinking back to the days of banner ads and things like that. Um, if you do some some proper placement, I mean, a, a favorite show of mine, The Sopranos, um, you know, did they had hardly any commercials uh, on a set. They just had a lot of product placement in it. Um, you know, looking at uh, at Trump's show, uh, similar thing. There were a, a few less commercials, and they had product placement in it. Um, if if you know more of the traditional media heads in that direction, then the the actual videos as they're showing through on YouTube or wherever. Um, 
they are going to have the same or a very similar impact. Yes, I'm going to skip through an actual traditional ad, but you know, I do that on my TV anyway. That's what a, a remote is for. Um, but you know, if you're if you're bleeding this in, I'm actually entertained while you're feeding this advertising to me. I know that Tony Soprano drinks Coke, right? I know that, and I still remember it. Great placement for uh, for Coca-Cola there. If more of the traditional media heads that direction, they're going to increase the value of online advertising. Uh, and and be able to make more money. I mean, not not that most of them need it, but you know they might as well grab it because that's what this is all about. Well, I mean, clearly something's going to change. Uh, someone's going to come up with a business model that works. Uh, I remember I remember seven or eight years ago we were sitting around wondering how search engines were going to actually make their money back. Yeah. And then Google <laughs> came out with their amazing innovation, AdSense slash or AdWords slash AdSense, and suddenly the search engines were making money hand over fist. I remember the days when search engines monetized themselves by showing banner ads. Um, <laughs> nobody, nobody was getting rich those days, except maybe Yahoo with their post-IPO. Um, moving right along, it's uh, a bunch of anniversaries I want to I uh, get out. Uh, Vive le Quebec. It's Quebec City's 400th anniversary. Oldest city in North America, founded 400 years, years ago today. Uh, Happy birthday, Quebec City. I wish I could have said that in Quebecois. Um, tomorrow is America's 222nd birthday, and on Tuesday it was Canada's 141st birthday. So happy birthday, all jurisdictions. Um, yeah. One more thing I really want to get off my chest before we head to break. This is kind of a personal embarrassment thing. Um, you missed a good poker game the other night, Dave. Really Uh-oh. good game. Um, I did well at the table, but then I came home and I was still, you know, kind of tipsy. And I was, you know, one of those nights where you just don't want to go to sleep because you just had so much fun and you got all your adrenaline running and you're a little bit drunk and you sit down in front of your computer and up top it's Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so Facebook has has this really really funny compare people uh, feature where it asks you a bunch of oddest questions about, you know, yeah, so you compare this person who's kinder, who's more likely to do you a favor, who would you rather cuddle with, who would you rather date, who would you rather sleep with, stuff like that. Now, most people have the common sense not to answer these questions, but I was drunk. Yeah. And um, the next morning, I awoke to, uh, well, to a small hangover and to a bunch of emails saying, what the, what the hell? Um, yeah. So I didn't reply to all of them because some of them I'm just sort of, you know, looking at the monitor going, oh, Jim, you're a serial boy. Because apparently you see this, this compare people thing sent out my responses to all the people that were being compared, right? Yeah, I got yeah. one. And in one case, I got a fairly prominent and, and fairly attractive woman in the search marketing community against an ex-girlfriend of mine. And the caption was, who would you like to sleep with more? <laughs> and, you know, I'd already, you know, kind of, this was an ex-girlfriend, right? So I mean, you, you think to yourself, what would you rather, you know, what, what, what would rather do with their time? So I went for the women in the search marketing community. Oh, I, you know what? To everybody who's on my compare list, my former compare list, um, <laughs> sorry, folks. Um, <laughs> I blame the booze, really, I do. <laughs> Don't drink in Facebook, friends. There's a reminder to you. Don't drink in Facebook. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Microsoft Power Set and they're going after Yahoo again. I don't think we're going to have time to because we have to go to break. Before we hit break, though, I want to mention Tuesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern, the return of SEO Rockstars. Last week was a great show. Next week's going to be a great show. Um, so, friends, if you were fans of the SEO Rockstars in the past, SEO Rockstars 2 is back. Check it out, 4 p.m. Eastern. This is Jim Hedger from MetaMen.com and Dave Davies from BeanstalkSEO.com. You're listening to Webcology on WebmasterRadio.fm. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back with Craig Aaron from SaveTheInternet.com. We'll be back after this short break. Welcome to Madame Natalia's. You've come to have your future told, no? Yeah, you see, I'm looking for the right life insurance affiliate program and I have... Say no more? Huh? I see you working with AccuQuote. AccuQuote? Yes, AccuQuote. They are the nation's premier life insurance brokerage. Go on. AccuQuote will create custom creatives for you to optimize your eCPM, and they will offer you the highest payout for this offer anywhere. So when's all this going to happen? As soon as you visit AccuQuote.com. 
AccuQuote.com. For life insurance, visit AccuQuote.com. Are your domains working hard enough for you? Now, park your portfolio at RevenueDirect.com to maximize your earnings on traffic. With RevenueDirect's proven domain monetization service, you'll experience better payouts, more options, and smart optimization. Sign up free now at RevenueDirect.com. It's that easy. RevenueDirect. Make more money. Period. Um, hello. Uh, welcome to our website. Website traffic isn't about paying for clicks. Okay, so I guess we're going to wait until everyone shows up and then we'll... Uh, um... It's about having the right content. So while you're searching for more traffic, the folks at InfoSearch Media are creating the content people are searching for. With InfoSearch Media, you can get more traffic for less money than PPC. So the next time you need to speak to your customers... Welcome to our website. They're already searching for you. InfoSearch Media. Get content that really clicks. AdTech returns to the Windy City August 5th and 6th for another great event of digital marketing that'll blow you away. Day one of AdTech Chicago starts with an opening keynote from Google CPG Industry Director Kevin Kells and wraps up with a keynote address from the best-selling author of Here Comes Everybody, Clay Shirky. Day two features several keynote roundtables focusing on conversational branding and a CMO roundtable. AdTech Chicago offers sessions for tactical marketing, emerging platforms, media branding, and more. Register now for AdTech Chicago August 5th and 6th. Register now at ad-tech.com. That's ad-tech.com. Dateline. Search Engine Strategies in New York. March 18th, 2008. The date where the pursuit of PPC would begin. What's the name of your show? What's it going to be? We don't have a name yet. PPC Rockstar. PPC Rockstar. PPC Rockstars. We're going to have guests. We're going to have the biggest PPC people in the industry. People listening in the audience can give the information about their landing pages, about their sites, their ad campaigns, and we will tear it apart on air and give them advice that we know will make them a lot of money right away. PPC Rockstars. Live broadcast Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the advertising channel. Only on webmasterradio.fm. The whoring of Facebook for promotional purposes continues with the WebmasterRadio.fm Facebook fan page. Join our fans by clicking the Facebook logo on the WebmasterRadio.fm homepage and keep up to date with all the latest. Become a fan on Facebook. Commercials off. Now back to Webcology, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Here are the hosts, Jim Hedger and Dave Davies. Hi, friends. Welcome back. This is Webcology on WebmasterRadio.fm. It's Thursday, July 3rd. This is Jim Hedrick from MetaMen.com and Dave Davies from BeanstalkSEO.com. And we have an interesting segment coming up. About a week ago, we recorded an interview with Craig Aaron, who's the communications director for SaveTheInternet.com, the pro net neutrality group. Now, before diving into the interview... Um, I just want to mention some of the mem- charter members of SaveTheInternet.com. Professor Lawrence Lessig, the Gun Owners of America, Craig Newmark, founder of Craigslist.org, MoveOn.org, the American Library Association, National Coalition of Women's Organizations, Parents Television Council, Con- Consumer Federation of America, Common Cause, the Christian Coalition of America, um, Center for Digital Democracy, and you know what? The list goes on. It covers uh, easily a page and a half. Clearly, there's a lot of people who are interested in the issue of net neutrality. Now, last week on Webcology, we had Christopher Wolf, a uh, lawyer and lobbyist in Washington who works, for, works with Hands Off the Internet, the anti-net neutrality group. Again, today, we have Craig Aaron, who's the director of communications for the probably the largest pro-net neutrality group, Save the Internet. Um, Brasco, if that tape is uh, is all queued up, I guess we should just go ahead with it. We have on the phone Craig Aaron, who's the chief spokesperson for SaveTheInternet.com, the organization that represents net neutrality. Craig, welcome to Webmaster Radio. Well, thanks for having me on again. Now, you were on our show uh, the alternative last year, and we, we spoke about net neutrality and, uh, and the, the specifically a bill that was going through Congress. Um, what could you update our listeners on the state of net neutrality today, uh, June two thousand and eight? Sure, uh, I'd be happy to, and I'm not exactly sure where we, we sort of last left the story, uh, but 
the fight for net neutrality uh, continues and really really couldn't be more important uh, now than, it, than it's ever been. Uh, what, what we've seen happen in the last couple of months, uh, certainly the last six months, is a real change in the debate over net neutrality because back in 2006 when this issue of net neutrality, uh, and yeah, so you're, as many of your listeners, I'm sure maybe hopefully all of them know, but if they don't, net neutrality is this very basic fundamental idea that's been part of the Internet since its inception that means no discrimination. It says that when you go online, you can download what you want, go wherever you want, watch whatever you want, and it's not up to your Internet service provider to decide which websites are going to work and which aren't, which are going to load fast and which are going to go slow, that everything gets treated essentially equally. Uh, All the similar kinds of content are treated the same. And uh, this, unfortunately, is in jeopardy because the big phone and cable companies don't want the Internet to continue to work the way that it always has. Uh, When this issue first came on, uh, became a real popular issue, an issue the public was aware of in 2006, the phone and cable companies always said that net neutrality is just a solution in search of a problem. Uh, But since then, we've found the problem. And the, the poster child for that problem is Comcast, the big cable company here in the States. And what they Comcast were caught uh, they were caught blocking uh, Internet traffic. Specifically, they were targeting file-sharing programs like BitTorrent and Nutella, uh, interfering with people's transmissions, basically actually impersonating their own customers to cut off these transmissions. Uh, they were doing this, and they never expected to be caught. Uh, uh, unfortunately for them, there was a guy named Rob Topolsky, a network engineer, uh, who happens to have a big fondness for barbershop quartet music uh, from the turn of the century. And he was trying to share some music in the public domain, legal content, trying to share some music uh, with some of his colleagues in the barbershop quartet world and found his, his, uh, you know, his sharing was being cut off. He was a Comcast customer. He started to alert people. Eventually, the Associated Press got interested. They did an investigation, and as part of that investigation, they actually tried to upload a copy of the King James Bible, again, very much legal content in the public domain, uh, and they were unable to do so. Comcast was cutting off these transmissions. Uh, in response to all of this, my group, uh, Free Press and SaveTheInternet.com, we filed a complaint with the Federal Communications Commission, and they have launched an investigation. There have been a series of public hearings, and we expect in the next couple of weeks, uh, uh, certainly by August, that the uh, FCC is going to uh, take some action against Comcast for blocking the Internet. But the, the larger issue that's been exposed here is that these phone and cable companies simply can't be trusted. They've said time and again that they're not going to do anything. Why would they ever interfere with content? And then time and again, they're caught just doing that. Comcast is the most glaring example. But we've seen AT&T censoring the content of a webcast concert they were showing last summer from Chicago. Uh, when Eddie Vedder of Pearl Jam started talking about George Bush, they cut off the transmission. We've seen Verizon cutting off text messages that NARAL Pro-Choice America tried to send to its own members. Uh, Verizon cut them off uh, until the story showed up on the front page of the New York Times and they reversed themselves. Uh, we've seen Charter Communications most recently trying to launch programs to essentially spy on their own customers to target them with certain kinds of ads. So time and again, Every time we've seen these phone and cable companies demonstrate that they should not be the ones in charge of the future of the Internet. And, of course, that's never been the way the Internet's worked. That's why this idea of net neutrality is so important, because it it clearly establishes that even playing field. It clearly keeps the Internet as the unrivaled uh, environment for democratic participation and free speech and economic innovation that it's always been. It doesn't hand all the power to these to this telephone and cable cartel, and and that's why it's become such a big and important issue. But the fight, the fight, unfortunately, is is not over. There is still legislation. It is still moving through Congress. It's not passed yet. The the current bill that, that we're supporting is called the Internet Freedom Preservation Act, House Bill fifty three fifty three bipartisan legislation introduced by Ed Markey and Chip Pickering that would very clearly establish net neutrality uh, as part of the it would, it would establish it in the Communications Act, which is our fundamental law that governs all, that governs all communications, and we would make sure that net neutrality applies to all the networks, wired, wireless, and everything you can think of of the 21st century. Now, we live in a, a capitalist society. Would these, uh, would the the companies themselves not have the right to to say these are our cables? We get to decide what what fair use is of them. If you don't like it, there is there is comp- competition out there. You can choose a different supplier if you really have a problem with what we're doing. 
Um, well, well, that's actually the problem. That the problem rate, or, is, or well, the problem is that you can't, you can't choose. You don't have another option. Uh, and there are, you know, the reason we have smart government policies is to is to protect consumers. Uh, from the abuses of, of monopolies. And what we're talking about, we're talking about broadband access, unfortunately, because of a series of bad policy decisions, uh, American consumers do not have a choice when it comes to their broadband access. Uh, at best, they have two options, the phone company providing them DSL or fiber or the cable company. And they've both indicated that they're go- they want to discriminate, that they're going to violate net neutrality. So there's really nowhere else to turn in the broadband realm. So they're not they're not forced to share their wires, unfortunately, like they used to be. There's not open access to the internet. So if your only choice is the phone company or the cable company, they both say they're going to discriminate. That's why we have to have these policies in place to make sure that we have that even playing field. Because the the, the, the capitalist part that I'm concerned about is having a free market online. You know, the, what's been so amazing about the internet is that the little guy has just as much a chance as a big guy to come up with the next big thing, a new website, a new blog, a new product. That's the beauty of the Internet. But without net neutrality, that all goes away. And suddenly to innovate, uh, you have to seek permission of the phone or cable company. That's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And there are certain obligations that come with the phone and cable companies getting to be monopolies, getting to lay their wires on public lands, getting to use public resources like our spectrum. That comes with obligations. And among those is or should be net neutrality and an even playing field for everybody. That's how we're going to get the most economic benefit, societal benefit, uh, democratic benefit, is by having these policies in place. That's what they're there for. Craig, something that I find very interesting, you mentioned um, four major companies, um, Comcast, AT&T, Verizon, and Charter. Um, Now, Comcast is, is about to be confronted by the FCC. If the FCC rules against them, would that constitute a precedent of some sort or another? Yeah, it absolutely would. Uh, you know, this is really a, this com- whole Comcast case is really a test of the FCC. The FCC had put out some principles, sort of vague, unenforceable principles, unfortunately, concerning net neutrality. And this is the first real test if they have any teeth. Now, I, I think ultimately the solution needs to come from Congress. That Congress needs to draw a clear line in the sand, saying none of this discriminatory behavior is going to be tolerated, and we're gonna, we have net neutrality on all networks. I think that needs to happen. But in the meantime, we're looking at the FCC being challenged and saying in, in the face of this kind of blatant violation, what are you going to do about it? And so whatever they do, we'll send a clear message to the other companies. What's what's gotten very interesting about the Comcast case is that the violations are so blatant and Comcast has bumbled their response so badly that even AT&T and Verizon have now gone to the FCC and said, well, you should really do something about this. Now, they're, of course, hoping that what the FCC will do is... AT&T and Verizon... um the Pearl Jam show that happened at Lollapalooza in Chicago uh, last right. summer, um, the Verizon text message case, um, and also the Charter Communications, the spying on the customers. In each case, when the consumer or a group of consumers found out that these corporations were doing this, that there was public outcry, and the, and the corporations had to pull back. For instance, um, the, the uncensored Pearl Jam show um, is now up online. Um, Verizon is no longer censoring text messages from uh, NARAL members. And uh, earlier this week, Charter Communications announced they were, they were not going to be spying on their, on their customers. How come, in the face of such tremendous consumer um, opposition, the companies continue to try to break net neutrality standards? Well, you know, it's a great point, and it just shows you how how upset their own customers are about what they're doing. And, and there is some impact, you know, and in these very specific cases, on a case-by-case basis, you know, we have been able to expose what's going on and push back. But unfortunately, you know, these the technologies are getting so sophisticated that we, we need a clear baseline that applies to everyone because they've shown time and again that they, they won't police themselves and that their promises are, are, are not worth anything, that they're going to still try. And the reason they're doing it is they, they want to make more money. Uh, they want to be they want to see how far they can push the envelope, what they can get away with uh, in order to, you know, uh, try to hold on to this model where they get to make all the decisions. That's never been the way the Internet's worked. Uh, in fact, some of these companies, the fund and cable companies, are very uncomfortable in this space because they're used to the type of system like a cable television system where 
they get to decide what channels you get, uh, and they get to put their own products front and center. That's not the way the Internet works. They're trying to change that and push that envelope and take advantage of their dominance of our Internet access market. You know, phone and cable companies dominate 99% of the market for Internet access. While that's true, and because they've been able to game the system and establish policies to do that, they're seeing how far they can go to undercut their competition in the content realm. And so, and, you know, and that's one of the scary things here is you know, we have caught a few of these examples, but we don't, we don't know necessarily what else is going on. And as these technologies develop, it's going to be harder and harder to know exactly what these, uh, exactly what these companies are up to. You know, not every person who's trying to share barbershop quartet music in the middle of the night also happens to be a network engineer. And that's why we need our regulators to step in and say, you know, here's the clear line. If you step over it, there's going to be serious consequences. Now, you were touching on earlier the the right of, you know, sort of the joy of the Internet being that the, the small is equal to the large. Um, you know, and we'll get aside marketing budgets and stuff like that, consider that irrelevant. Sure. Um, but if I was, say, a property owner and I owned vast amounts of property, I could rent out uh, a place on Fifth Avenue in, in Manhattan for far more than I could rent out a, a place on whatever, Beacon Avenue here in, in Sydney, a, a small town up here in Canada. Why Why is it that we should legislate some different standard for the telecommunications industry when, you know, in, in every other industry this does happen? The more valuable space gets, can charge more money. Um, well, why I mean, should I think it be we're, different? We're talking why about should basic uh, we not give priority to people who can afford it? Well, it's because that's the bargain that, we, that, that the phone and cable companies have struck in order to be in this position as monopolists. In other words, it's, it's, it's government money and taxpayer money that subsidize, subsidize the building of these networks. Uh, these are these, in fact, the internet itself was originally a public project. Uh, they don't they they don't own the internet. Uh, they have to dig up city streets to lay their wires and and put all these things into place, and they are very well compensated for it. All we're saying is, in exchange for that bargain, and instead for the opportunity to make all this money uh, on internet access, that you need to treat all content equally. Now that doesn't mean they can't raise their prices if their expenses go up. Uh, because it just means they need to treat everybody the same. So anybody who's offering phone service gets the same deal. Uh, any search engine gets the same deal. It's not up to them to pick and choose the winners on the Internet. That's the way the Internet's always worked, and that's what's made it such a remarkable success. So we want to preserve that, and that requires smart policies, you know, just like any, you know, any other industry, whether, you know, you're, you're talking about road building or, you know, electricity or you name it, you know, there are, there are, there are you know, private entities, there are public entities, but there, there are rules of the road. And on the Internet, net neutrality has always been the rule of the road. And so th- they may talk about their pipes or, or this, that, and the other thing, but that's, that's simply not what's, what's happening here and not what should be happening here. We need to make sure that we can bring the benefits of broadband to all Americans, and if we leave it in the hands of just the phone and the cable companies uh, and leave them up to their own devices, we're not going to get there. Now, it's, it's interesting that you should mention um, smart policies and search engines in the same paragraph. Um, Bitsurf, uh, one of the, the widely regarded as the grandfather of the Internet, one of the co-inventors of um, the TC, TCPIP protocol, mm-hmm. and now chief evangelist at Google, um, He's all for net neutrality. To, to quote, to quote Vimsurf, the Internet was designed with no gatekeepers over new content or services. A lightweight but enforceable net neutrality rule is needed to ensure the Internet continues to thrive. Now, Vimsurf is one of the co-inventors of TCPIP. The other co-inventor, Bob Kahn, calls the term net neutrality a slogan, and he states he opposes establishing it, warning that nothing interesting can happen inside the net if neutrality passes. If the goal is to encourage people to build new capabilities, then the party that takes the lead in building that new capability is probably going to have it on their net to start with. It's probably not, it's probably not going to be on anyone else's net. Why is there a discrepancy between the, 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 the feelings of the two grandfathers of the Internet? Well, you know, I, I, I can't speak for them, obviously, and, and certainly, you know, I, I find, you know, I certainly agree with Vince Cerf. Uh, I, I think he's, he's doing the right thing. I think that, you know, in a lot of the early days of the Internet, there was this knee-jerk, reflexive reaction that anything to do with the government is bad. And, you know, therefore, you know, any kind of government involvement was going to lead to, you know, shutting down all the great things that are on the Internet. But, but now we're, we're, we're in a different era, and what we need is not government regulation, per se, in the, in the sort of negative sense of the term, but 
some clear uh, clear things established to create the, to preserve what we've what we've had to keep this inter- this even playing field. And the fact is that these kind of rules, net neutrality, were always part of the internet. Certainly in the dial-up era, you know, there were there it was in, in that part of the Communications Act, clear non-discrimination language and clear open access language that required, for example, the phone company to share their wires so we get lots of different competitors. I think, ultimately, that, that's where we need to go, is back to these ideas of open access. That's what's working in Japan and South Korea and all these places that are the world leaders in broadband deployment. So why Bob Kahn feels that way, I, I, I suspect it's tied to this sort of fundamental idea of this sort of knee-jerk, anything the government can do is bad. But what I believe, and where I think of Insurf is coming from as well, is that we're going to have rules. Uh, the only question that matters is who are those rules going to benefit? And I think the beauty of net neutrality is that it benefits all Internet users, not just the phone and cable companies. And if you get rid of it, then you're putting everything in the hands of the phone and cable companies. As Vince Cerf himself says, the, phone, it, the beauty of the Internet is that you can innovate without permission. But you get rid of net neutrality, and that goes away. And then suddenly, if you want to be the, the next big thing on the Internet, a new product, a new search engine, a new service, things we haven't even dreamed of yet, you would actually have to go to the phone and cable companies for permission to cut them in on the deal. That goes against exa- the, the, the very fundamental and democratic nature of the Internet that we've always had. If these phone companies had their way, you know, we'd, we'd also have black rotary phones on our walls that we were paying a monthly fee for. That was a great model for them. That's not the way the Internet works. You know, it was just a couple years ago that the founders of Google were a couple of grad students working out of a garage. You know, some students in Israel came up with instant messaging. All the innovation has been happening at the edges. That's what's so great about the Internet that these guys originally built. It forced the innovation to the edges. The network was a, you know, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a dumb network. You know, it didn't favor, it didn't pick or choose what worked and what didn't. And we've seen such great rewards from that. What net neutrality is about is keeping that going. Now, net neutrality is, is an economic issue, and it's a multi-billion dollar economic issue. I can't imagine the size of the lobby efforts on both sides of the issue in Washington. Would, would you be able to describe the, the lobby effort for and against net neutrality sure, um, as, I, I as would. in Washington? And in Washington, unfortunately, uh, it's been largely against uh, against net neutrality. And the, the phone and cable companies are very, very powerful lobbies here in Washington, and they have been for a long time. They employ a lot of people, of course, uh, and they've got a lot of very experienced lobbyists. In fact, when AT&T uh, at the beginning of last year, tried to get all their lobbyists together, they actually had to rent out a movie theater because they couldn't fit in anybody's conference room. There were so many of them. And that, that's the way they're used to doing business, behind closed doors, uh, with, with, with little or no public involvement. That's what they've always expected. And they've been able to you know, do a lot of damage, I think, because of that. Now, but what happened and what AT&T wasn't expecting is we've begun to see, and they spent hundreds of millions of dollars in the last couple of years lobbying in Washington, just, just to be clear. And that's just the, the Washington lobbying, not including all these what we call astroturf efforts or the fake grassroots. But AT&T uh, also uh, uh, awoke the public. And uh, groups like SaveTheInternet.com, which, to be clear, doesn't take any money from any corporation or political party or, or government. We're, we're, we're funded by individuals and charitable foundations, and uh, it doesn't, doesn't take a dime from companies you know, like AT&T and Verizon or like Google, who may happen to be on the same side of this issue. Uh, but we, we found that the only way to, to stand up to that organized uh, money was with organized people. And so we built a coalition across the political spectrum. Uh, including groups like MoveOn.org and the Christian Coalition and the ACLU and the Gun Owners of America and the American Library Association, all coming together because they, they, they cared about what was going to happen with the future of the Internet. And we were able to generate nearly 2 million calls, letters, emails to Congress and stop a bad bill from, uh, from, from being enacted. Now, we spent a fraction, several hundred thousand dollars, compared to several hundred million probably spent by, uh, by, by the companies. They outspent us 200 to 1. But we were able to stop a bad bill from happening. Now the question is, can we actually push through a good bill with this coalition? And the only way to do that, of course, is to broaden the coalition, 
talk to the public, get more people involved in this fight to make sure the free and open Internet stays that way. And so that, that's what's happening here in Washington. And, you know, I think the big challenge is getting it out of Washington and into local communities. You know, what was amazing about this whole debate when it first happened in 2006 is we got very close to a vote in Congress that would have gotten rid of net neutrality. Uh, we were able to stop it, but just barely. And even at that point, even at that point when it could have gone to the floor of the Senate, you know, members of Congress, they hadn't bothered to go out uh, into their districts, into their their communities, and actually ask people, what do you think the future of the Internet should look like? We're making these fundamental decisions, and unfortunately, this is the way our media policy has been made for a long time, fundamental decisions that are going to shape the future of the Internet for a generation, and little or no public input. So one of our big priorities right now is, is starting to change that, starting to have a public conversation where before they vote, members actually go out and find out, well, what do they think about this? And we've seen, even with the FCC, who's done a couple hearings, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people showing up in the middle of the week, in the middle of the day, to talk about this issue. This is something people, when they find out about it, they really care about it, uh, but we need to create uh, opportunities for them to do so. In fact, just yesterday... We launched an initiative called InternetForEveryone.org, which is a, a collaboration between public interest groups. Again, doesn't take corporate money, but includes corporations like Google and, and many, many others, uh, small bloggers, big companies, everybody really who has a stake in the Internet and is not a member of Congress or a phone company. They've, they've had their say. Uh, trying, to, trying to organize. We're going to do a series of public hearings throughout the fall and into early next year to hopefully really set an agenda for the next president and the next administration so that we are we are dealing with these fundamental issues. How are we going to bring the benefits of broadband all Americans? How are we going to bring lower prices and faster speeds like we see elsewhere in the world? How are we going to make sure that we, we share in that here in the States as well? So that, that's an ongoing effort. And really, I think truly for the first time, you know, the Internet has been certainly a tool in elections in the past. But this election we're going to have here this November, I think will be the first time that the Internet itself as an issue, as a political issue, is really part of a presidential election. And hopefully that will turn into a decisive action and an action that actually benefits the public when the next administration comes in in 2009. Now, it's one thing, and it's great to, to have these, these forces mobilizing together, but it's one thing to have all the corporations, the Googles of the world, etc., um, gathering together, all the main bloggers getting together. That's definitely an important step. But um, as just a, a simple user in somewhere in the middle of Utah, what can your average human being do uh, if they want to get behind this, how do they make their voice heard? Well, the best thing they can really do right now is call their member of Congress. Uh, they should be go. To, they can go to savetheinternet.com, get all the information about what's happening, uh, or go to internetforeveryone.org if they're looking for something uh, beyond net neutrality. But the best thing they can do is get involved. Uh, you can have a tremendous impact by just calling the office and letting them know what you think. Even better. Uh, is when you're a member of Congress, if you sign up at com and your member of Congress is back at back home in August and September uh, while Congress is out of session, is actually go see them. Uh, you know, we can help you organize a meeting where you go in and explain, you know, I'm an Internet user, I run a small business, here's why this matters to me. That has a tremendous impact. You know, for, for so long these decisions were being made, and, and no, they, they were, the public was never heard from. You know, and these lobbies were able to go in and just say, oh, this is too complicated, it'll hurt your head, don't be bothered with it, we'll write the laws, we'll write the regulations, and they did. And so this is the first, really one of the first times where we're, we're pushing back against that. So people have to, you know, really get involved at that, at that local level with, with their representatives in Congress, uh, file their comments with the FCC. And then the other thing they can do that's crucially important is just simply tell their friends and neighbors. You know, whatever you're doing on the Internet, you know, let people know this is an issue. Let them know that this is an issue that could affect your ability to communicate, you know, to be able to talk to your friends, to be able to write your blog, to have your viewpoints get out there. You know, one of the amazing things, really, about this whole fight over net neutrality has been people using the Internet to save the Internet. You know, one of the things that, that really made in 2006 when we were really staring down some terrible legislation in Congress was people started making YouTube videos on their own, no direction from a group like SaveTheInternet.com. They heard about net neutrality, they put it in their own words, and millions and millions more people found out about it because, you know, Ask a Ninja dressed up as a ninja and started talking about net neutrality. Now, he didn't have all the details right, but it didn't matter. It was funny. People found out about it. You know, people spread around. Uh, a senator named Ted Stevens gave this famous speech on the floor of the Senate where he described the Internet as not a truck but a series of tubes, uh, and people yeah. remixed it, and they, you know, they turned it into music, and they, you know, 
mocked him relentlessly, and that was probably the single most important event that happened to stop a bad bill from passing was that Ted Stevens speech. And people made T-shirts, and millions of more people found out about it. Eventually it made its way to The Daily Show. Millions and millions more found out about it. It's that kind of, you know, taking these issues, putting them in your own words. You know, there were food bloggers writing about net neutrality and sports bloggers and, you know, people who normally wouldn't touch politics, people who liked old cartoons were making little videos about net neutrality. That's what that kind of, of, of grassroots and net roots work is really what has made the difference in this fight so far. And I think that's how ultimately we win is by just continuing to, to spread, spread the message among our, our own networks and, uh, and talking, to our, talking to our neighbors about it. Craig, I'm, uh, I'm afraid we have to close down now, but I have, I have one last question for you. I know that I realize that you're unable to endorse any candidates or political parties. However, which party tends to favor net neutrality more than the other? Well, I'll tell you, it's really been a bipartisan issue, uh, but the difference has been in the leadership. So there, you know, there's bipartisan support for all the net neutrality legislation in Congress right now, Republicans and Democrats. And, and I don't think the beauty of the issue is actually that it doesn't break down along partisan lines. But I will say this. When, when push came to shove, the Democratic leadership, uh, certainly when they were on the defensive, and, they've, they've, uh, and they would love to see a little bit more action now while they're in Congress, uh, has, has endorsed and supported net neutrality, spoken very favorably about it. The Republican leadership has not. If you're looking at the presidential candidates, uh, you know, Senator Obama... Uh, has said he will take a backseat to no one when it comes to net neutrality. He's put that out there as a statement. Senator McCain, who, who's a, been on the Commerce Committee for a long time, when the vote, you know, he's been sort of back and forth and wishy-washy, but when he, when he had a chance to vote on the issue in 2006, he voted against net neutrality. So that, that's where they stand now. Now, I think, you know, these are winning issues for any candidate. And, uh, I, you know, I hope whoever's in the White House next will take them very, very seriously because they're going to have the opportunity to make the decisions that are going to shape the future of the Internet for a generation. Uh, but, but that's where they stand now. Well, Craig Aaron, Communication Director at Free Press and SaveTheInternet.com. Um, thank you so much for joining us on WebmasterRadio.fm. Well, there you have it, friends. That was uh, Craig Aaron from SaveTheInternet.com on WebmasterRadio.fm, part of uh, Webcology's ongoing look at issues on the American election. We're done for the day. Thank you so much for tuning in. Now, stay tuned to WebmasterRadio.fm. There's some, we've got the Waz. Steve Wozniak is going to be on 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Uh, stay tuned for Linda Woods and the Affiliate Marketing Show coming up right after us. Um, this is Jim Hedger from MetaMen.com and Dave Davies from Facebook SEO. You're listening to Webcology on WebmasterRadio.fm. Talk to you next week.